Again, Antigua is a small place, a small island. It is nine miles wide by 12 miles long. It was discovered by Christopher Columbus in 1493, not too long after it was settled by human rubbish from Europe who enslaved but noble and exalted human beings from Africa. All masters of every stripe are rubbish and all slaves of every stripe are noble and exhausted. There can be no question about this. To satisfy desire for wealth and power, to feel better about their own miserable existence so they could be less lonely and empty, a European disease. Book Society Podcast, Adwige Danticat is our guest. Adwige Danticat is the author of Breath, Eyes, Memory, which was an Oprah Book Club selection. She is the author of Crick Crack, which was a National Book Award finalist, the author of The Farming of Bones, The Dewbreaker, Create Dangerously, Claire of the Sea Light, Everything Inside. She is the editor of The Butterfly's Way, Voices from the Haitian Diaspora. She's the editor of the Best American Essays of 2011 and Haiti Noir 1 and 2. She has also written seven adult and children's books. She's written Brother, I'm Dying, which was also a National Book Award finalist. So every time she writes a book, basically the National Book Award is taking a look at it. Brother, I'm Dying was the winner of the Critics Circle Award for Autobiography. She is a Ford Foundation Fellow. She's won a Newstat International Prize. She won the St. Louis Literary Award. And she is a MacArthur Fellow, which makes her an official genius. Adwige Danticat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. The book that Adwige chose today is Jamaica Kincaid's 1988 classic, A Small Place, which I had not read. I'm so glad that I did. It is beautiful. She's just such a beautiful writer. It was amazing to go on this journey with her. Why did you pick this book? I picked this book because it's Jamaica Kincaid. And as you said, she's an extraordinarily lyrical and powerful writer who also delivers the message, if you will, because this book has several messages, but with such a punch too. There's both a lyricism to the work, but there's a directness. The voice is so strong and self-assured. It's a book that I go back to quite a bit because coming from Haiti, there's so many parallels in some of the situations that she describes, but also it's because it's so beautifully written. I think for folks who write essays or if you're writing this mix of a lyrical essay and a political essay, this book is that and so much more. I always flag the second person every time I see it in writing because I feel like it puts readers on edge. You know, whenever you say you do X, I think the reader wants to say, no, I don't. <laughs> Jamaica Kincaid and Proust, I think, are the two people who have nailed it the best. But it describes what you will feel like when you visit Antigua. As she's describing it, I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds about right. And then it takes a turn. But she really lures you in with this friendliness. Have you been to Antigua before? I have not been to Antigua. But the way she describes it could be so many different places that people go as a tourist. I'll read you a bit of the first paragraph. If you go to Antigua as a tourist, this is what you will see. If you come by airplane, you will land at the C.V. Bird International Airport. Very Cornwall, V.C. Bird is the prime minister of Antigua. You may be the sort of tourist who would wonder why a prime minister would want an airport named after him. Why not a school? Why not a hospital? Why not some great public monument? And then it goes on <laughs> from there. And you, I mean, the you in this second person, even if we have not been to Antigua in this way, you've been someplace like that. 
where you land and you don't quite understand the lay of the land and you don't quite know the nuance and the dynamics of the place. So she gives you her version because I think there was a lot of pushback, but she gives you her version of what she imagines that a tourist would see. And she goes back into her past. And I think even if one has not been to that particular place, you've been to other places that you could just fill in the place and there's similar dynamics or their own dynamics that are reflected in this book as well. That resonated with me too, but I wonder if it's because you and I both grew up in tourist cities and currently live in tourist cities. You are a person who lives in Miami, but you are a New Yorker and I am a New Yorker who lives in Los Angeles. And what do you call someone from Miami? I've heard people say Miamians. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We see tourists all the time. They don't frequent the places that I usually hang out, but you can't really avoid them. They all have this sort of look. They're amazed, but confused and... It doesn't bother me as an Angelino, that's what we call ourselves, but it's because the tourism is just not the biggest industry here. But in Antigua, it's really the only industry. Yeah, there's a very specific aspect to Caribbean tourism that I think Jamaica Kincaid is getting at in this book. A lot of these Caribbean tourist sites are also sites of plunder, of colonialism. We had a really interesting example this past week when Prince William and Kate went on this Caribbean tour for his grandmother's jubilee in Jamaica. For example, the prime minister saying, we're going to go our own path. And Barbados did recently. And other places are looking at separating from the British Empire. So she talks about empire. She talks about colonialism. She talks about imperialism, which when the tourists go to the Caribbean, they're not thinking about all of that. And she makes a very pointed difference between people who are from the place and are returning with their bags full of clothes and presents and so forth, which I've seen in all parts of the Caribbean. And then the tourists who are coming, like she says, you know, if you want to read books, bring your own books because the library has been neglected. And a lot of the tourists who go to the Caribbean, they just want to be on the beach. A lot of them are not going to museums. They're not trying to dig into the history. They want the sun and the fun. It's also like Cri de Coeur, two people who participate in this kind of tourism, to also think deeper about the places because there are people living in those places who are struggling with very hard and difficult issues. The you that she's mentioning, they're not so concerned about that because they're saved up for this vacation to escape their own sort of blob of a life, as she puts it. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing with the tourism in Puerto Rico. Also, we have a lot of Spanish colonial sites. And I think to the American mind, history begins around 1900. And then before 1900 is ancient history till about 1600. And then before that, it's just Romans. I know that any educated American knows intellectually that that's not true. But I think that those are categories that we separate history into. And you get this feeling of walking through ancient things when you're in Puerto Rico, specifically walking in Old San Juan and by El Moro. But these things are 300 year old structures that were built by the Spanish to oppress the indigenous people. There's history on that island for thousands of years before that. But nobody really talks about that. And The same is true, surely, in Antigua. Also, I'm sure in Haiti, where you're from. I wanted to ask you, so Jamaica Kincaid hates the English. I think that's safe to say. I think she (laughs) explicitly says that she hates the English. Do you feel the same way about the French? (laughs) I don't love the French for what they did to us and what continues to do us today, right? 
So Jamaica Kincaid talks about the lingering cultural presence of the English and the French, the same way, I mean, similarly the way she describes it, but the French, what they did, they enslaved us, the colonialism. And then there was the Haitian revolution in 1804, which capped in 1804, but was a 12 year revolution in which the English, the Spanish, they all flowed through. But what the French did in Haiti was particularly hideous post-independence, they made Haiti pay this exorbitant amount of money that really wasn't finished being paid until the 20th century. And then they also had to borrow from French banks to pay the debt to the French. So it's especially an hideous case of colonialism because there was no funds left. There's no funds left for education. There was no fund left to build a nation. So what the French did to us were paying until today. So I think this is why this book also resonates so much. It's sort of an extreme form of deprivation of white supremacy that Haiti is still paying for today. There's so many places and there were like former sites of plunder, of colonialism, of continuing imperialism that have their own version of a book like this, right? In ways that we remain wounded, that we remain trapped with these desires that these powers have. And what I love what she says is that Antigua, she defines as an island, but also England as an island, right? Like this little bit of place that controlled like a third of the world's population. And the French was similar with Haiti, but also throughout Africa and all of the wealth that was extracted from those places in a way that still affects us today. Yeah, the Haitian Revolution is, I think, an understudied revolution in general, because it's so interesting and it was so important. The thing that struck me about it is that, one, is that it was the first successful slave revolt, which is kind of amazing. The only, I think, successful slave revolt. But the reason that the slaves on Haiti felt empowered to revolt was because the French Revolution had just happened and the imperial power that was controlling Haiti had just fought a revolution based on equality and brotherhood. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was part of it, but also the enslaved Africans that they had brought over never lost their desire for freedom. Maybe the French, of course, this notion of their own revolution was part of it. But I think the Haitian Revolution was definitely grounded in the idea of globally Black people being free. So that even post-revolution, people were invited, like if you were enslaved elsewhere and you reached Haiti, you were free. You were given land. The newly free Haitians, you know, Simone Bolivar got weapons and funds and ships to go fight in part to liberate other enslaved people throughout the Americas. So the Haitian Revolution was also very much grounded on equality for Black people, of freedom for people throughout the region and the world were enslaved. You had the Americans, who was the second country in the hemisphere to also declare themselves free from an imperial power, like from the British as well. But they had that contradiction of we're all created equal while they were enslaving people. The Haitian Revolution wanted to do away with all of that, wanted to be like, all humans are free including at that time, women who were not free elsewhere either. What you're talking about of like being a beacon of freedom is what the French Revolution was about. They just didn't think to extend it to black people. 
I think that the citizens of Haiti who were French citizens in theory were like, well, yeah, why doesn't this apply to us? This is a great idea. We're going to actually take it to help our people as well. There's no argument to that. If you're fighting for liberty everywhere, you're fighting for liberty everywhere. Therefore, Haiti should be free. There's really no way to argue out of that. Yeah, no, I just want to resist that we got the idea from them, that notion. Okay, okay. Because there were certainly bad practitioners of it, right? As were the Americans who were like, we want to create this great nation while we're enslaving people. I think those contradictions were also clear. So let me clarify my point then. I'm not saying that the enslaved people of Haiti saw the French Revolution and thought, oh, we can be free too. I'm saying that they saw the way that the people in France were conducting their revolution and saying that you are being hypocrites if you do not free us. Yes. Okay. This is an opportunity for us to hoist you on your own petards and put you in an uncomfortable position that will basically intellectually make you agree with us. Okay. There was so much inhumanity. They had these codes and these ways of punishing people that were so extreme that hopefully these same people would see us as at least equal of these other disadvantaged citizens of your own land. Yeah. Haiti, like Puerto Rico, was a sugar colony. I don't know how they make sugar today, but in the 18th and 19th century, sugar production was just brutal. It was just a brutal thing to have to grow and to make. I mean, harvesting it was horrible. And then the way that they process it was, you know, just boiling it. And in the Caribbean, you've got these boiling vats of sugar and people would die. And from what I read, the, the Haitian plantations were just particularly bad. Yeah, I don't know why I'm telling you about the Haitian Revolution. You know more about it than I do. It's something <laughs> we're always learning more about. Like, for example, even the role of women in the Haitian Revolution. There's an extraordinary historian, Baina Bello, who has written a lot about the women fighters of the revolution. So all of that, you know, now we're getting things to her and other historians, a better sense of like the role that women played in that revolution. We're always learning, of course. I mean, when it comes to sugar, Voltaire and Candide, there's that moment where through Candide's travels, he runs into someone who has his arm cut off and he said something like, c'est à ce prix que vous mangez du sucre en France. You know, like this is at the price that you eat sugar in France. So there was people who were already looking at this very critically who knew the price of their luxury. I think going back to this book, what Jamaica Kincaid, what she talks about, I mean, I think capitalism, she said, do you know why people like us are a little bit shy about capitalism, right? I think that's how she introduces that notion. And she talks about sugar because a lot of production of sugar costs us a lot. Coffee, sugar, cotton, these staples that built these other places and stripped the places where we come from of our humanity, of our ability to produce for ourselves to the point that even agriculture, you know, she talks about so much import, even things that we could be producing for ourselves are taken up by these crops that we export. So one of the things that she talks about is sort of the flip side of that and wrapped around the tourism again that we began with, where she talks about you can be in this place that people are eating what they think is a perfectly local dish, but then she puts it, that food might've come from Miami. The way it got to Miami was probably from a place like Antigua was then produced by poor people and then shipped to Miami and repackaged and sent back to you, which is 
very powerful. That kind of pulls us from the past to the future, but it's a very powerful argument for what is happening on a lot of the islands. Local agriculture is just devastated. And then people are buying these exports at such high prices. She talks about capitalism in that way. And there was a wonderful documentary that was based on this book that talks a lot about that too. But she talks about it in this way, but also brings in the visitor. You're being told these myths that then is part of all this experience. Just the way that we came into this historical conversation, I feel like she's inviting people into historical conversations about the places that you go. She sometimes says things like, you know, people that ugly tourists, and she does talk about the sort of the ugly tourists too. But I think there's also an invitation in that is that if you have to be a tourist, be an informed tourist, know the history of the places that you are going to and the weight of that history for the people who still live there. Yeah, that's a really beautiful idea in this book and that summed it up beautifully. One of the things I was thinking when I was reading this was that when you're a tourist, it's a show. When you go to Antigua, what you see, the main street where your hotel is and where all the restaurants are that have the food that was packaged in Miami and then sent back here as local fare, it's a show. It's like seeing a staged play. And she's inviting you to come backstage and see, you know, these people who are serving you and acting like they're happy to serve you also have lives and are also people who have the same concerns that you have in your home. It's interesting because that seems to me like an obvious sentiment. Obviously, everybody is a human being, but it is something that I think tourists forget because you're at a place and they're putting on a little bit of a show for you. The way she explains that in the book and the way she sort of unfolds that I thought was confrontational, but it was also unarguably true. She really just made you feel that in a way that I thought was really beautiful. Yeah, I really like what you said about going backstage. I think that's a really amazing metaphor for that whole experience. There's also these personal intrigues, right? Like the prime ministers who keep dying or they're poisoned. And then she talks about this thing that we talk about all the time in Haiti. And I think the other place where people who are powerful people in government, for example, if they get sick, they have to come to Miami for care. Or the fact that where she talks about this one prime minister who got sick, but had to be put in the intensive care because as she puts it, you wouldn't leave even your pet the way she describes it, I think that's like, wow, that's a way to get that across so powerfully. But also I think she nuances it by saying something like, the people in a small place cannot give a complete account of themselves. And she talks about what that means of being in a small place where something is always coming at you until it's sitting on top of you, right? Something you cannot control. So I think she also makes room for the incompleteness of these narratives, like the incomprehensibility of it. So that it just feels like if you wrote a novel about these prime ministers, who one is electrocuted accidentally, and then another one gets sick at that one's funeral and dies. And as you were saying with behind the scenes, there's always this intrigue, right? This internal intrigue with a place that you're seeing the palace, but you're seeing the behind the scenes, which is, I think, a really great contemporary and wonderful way of putting it. Local politics, I think, are interesting anywhere. 
But the way she writes about it in Antigua, I mean, we have some weird stuff going on in Los Angeles. I'm sure there's some weird local politics going on in Miami, but nobody's gotten electrocuted. <laughs> nobody's getting murdered. That's another level. So Jamaica Kincaid is obviously a master of the English language. And she writes about how it's difficult for her to talk about the atrocities committed by the English in English, even though that's her native language, because the language itself softens the things that the oppressors have done. I wonder, do you find it difficult to talk about atrocities committed by the French in French, or do you find it easier to talk about them in English? I don't write in French because I grew up in Haiti at a time where, yes, education was in French, and there's still a remnant of a French educational system that is followed in Haiti. But I spoke Creole at home. Not everybody does, but in my family, we spoke Creole at home. And then I did French for school. So it never felt to me like I was going to write in French, but we did read a lot of the great French literature, including like Voltaire, books like Candide, and then and Zola, who in their way talked about the misery, the suffering of people in a very vivid way. So I didn't, but I write in English and there are a lot of atrocities committed by people who have spoken English. There's a lot of atrocities. There are a lot of things that were done historically to Haiti by the United States. So that in a way can be seen as a kind of betrayal, I suppose, right? But there's an often cited quote by Gustavo Perez Fermat in Bilingual Blues, where he writes, the fact that I'm writing to you in English already falsifies what I wanted to tell you. My subject, how to explain to you that I don't belong to English, though I belong nowhere else. One can argue that we do belong to other places, but I feel like that's such a powerful explanation of sort of the dilemma, you know, of bilingual people. But I've always felt like for me, I guess because I'm also like a visitor to English in a way that I wouldn't be a visitor to French or Creole is that I felt comfort in the fact that you had Toni Morrison's English, right? And you have the protest rappings English, you had the blues is English. So I felt like in a way that there was a place for immigrant writers who come here and learn English and write their stories with their language clearly behind that veil of the English. In that way, I felt like there was a place for me to enter. You consider yourself to be a guest to English? <laughs> Sometimes I feel like a guest, especially when I'm talking to my children and they're like, what is this? And they go, you meant. <laughs> I mean, I've been here now 41 years, uh, Lord, but I still make some mistakes that are particularly mine. So like you develop certain ways of saying something, some things you can't pronounce. But, you know, English is my third language in life. So I still feel like poking through a veil sometimes. But it makes me push further for my own clarity because I'm thinking, is this really what I want to say? Is that coming across? But there's a freedom in it, too, in the fact that, for example, there are things that I felt like I could never say in Creole because it would offend certain people in my family. Like the things that I wouldn't be able to write in French because they would read it a certain way. When I was younger, like keep my diaries in English just so my parents wouldn't fully understand quickly what I had to say. <laughs> so it was an actually an act of maonage, 
early on when I started writing in English. Can you define that word for me? You know, we say maronage loosely, like it's based on being a maroon, like a secret operation. But maroons are legendary in our history. And they were the people who retreated to the mountains and fought from there. You just gave us some beautiful ideas about how English is your third language and how you feel like you're poking through a veil. And I just want to point out that you are one of the most lauded English writers around. So you're doing a great job, I guess. (laughs) It doesn't seem to the people who read your work like you're struggling with English is what I'm trying to say. I don't think I'm struggling anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so either. But I still feel like there's sort of different levels of ease. And actually, it's good, I think, to have a practice in which you have some kind of resistance. So for me, that helps actually to feel somewhat uneasy in whatever way. So yeah, you think that that uneasiness helps you be more clear or helps you express your ideas in a clearer voice? It helps me dig deeper in the sense that when I think about things, I was like, oh, is it coming across exactly? Does that word mean what I think it means? (laughs) Because things like that just sort of always feel a little bit unsettled is I think good for creativity. That's really fascinating. Can you tell us more about the Maroons? Okay, so Maroons were with the enslaved Africans who were brought to different parts of the Caribbean. There were some of them who would escape from the plantations where they were enslaved and retreated to the mountains and formed these settlements. And in some cases, they mixed with indigenous people who were also there in the mountains fleeing the Europeans. They formed these pockets of resistance. There were some, though they're not written as much about as others, Bukman, who was one of our Haitian revolutionaries, was believed also to have been a Maroon. People who just were not on the plantations who had escaped and were really always fighting from the mountains, would come in and fight and then retreat back to the mountains. Histories of Jamaican Maroons are legendary, but they were inspiring in the sense that there was hope out there, I think, to people who were still enslaved and planning and dreaming and waiting one day also for their freedom. That's like superheroes, like just knowing that there's someone out there that's working on your behalf, even if you'll never see them. And there could have been people who had family members who were still enslaved and were coming back for them. And there's some wonderful fictional works to that effect, but also all histories of that. So I use the term a little bit casually in the sense of like a kind of <laughs> gentle maunage. I'm so glad you did because I didn't know anything about that. And it's fascinating. So thank you. For the listeners, it's a very short novel. So if you haven't read it, it's beautiful. You could read it in an afternoon. You could probably also study it for a lifetime. It's a very friendly and inviting read. It's nonfiction. Sorry, you said novel. Oh, sorry. So it's a short book is what I meant. Yeah, it's definitely not a novel. Actually, that's a good question. Would you say it's narrative nonfiction? I mean, I guess... You could call it a lyrical essay, a political essay, even a kind of manifesto. It's so many things. There's some autobiography in there too. Yes, yes. And actually, there's another companion book to this, which is called My Brother, in which Jamaica Kincaid goes back to Antigua, I think, after this 
book was published and is taking care of her brother who is sick. She talks about the state of the hospital, talks about her brother. There's some familial reflections there. Her mother is throughout her work, a great presence. And her book, Annie John, the autobiography of my mother. I love that her mother makes an appearance in this book as an activist, (laughs) which is very differently than she's portrayed in her other work. I love seeing her mom here in this way. This kind of its own genre. I like to say that genres are an invention of the publishing industry because they want to be able to put things in a category. But yes, it's certainly not fiction in the sense that a novel would be fiction. Everything in it is true and really happened. So especially I looked this up. She just has this little aside about Barclays Bank and how the Barclay brothers who started the bank were slave traders. Just reading that, I was like, that can't be right, because then people would be up in arms and protesting outside the Barclays building. But yes, that is indeed true. It's on their website. I don't think I have any accounts with Barclays Bank, but I'm not going to open any now. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, so many of these banks did, though. Again, when she talks about capitalism, right, so many of these financial institutions were built out of the slave trade or profited from the slave trade. So if it's not Barclays Bank, it's some other bank. (laughs) I mean, it's almost every institution. Wealth in our society is at some level derived from slavery. It's not always direct, like Jeff Bezos didn't derive his wealth from slavery, but the infrastructure that was there to allow him to do what he did was built by slaves. You could say that Bezos' wealth is from a kind of modern version where they're paying people so little, right? But I think, you know, there are very specific institutions or institutions that derive that were sort of the third, fourth, tenth manifestation of these institutions that directly benefited, that have documents where they paid for human beings, where they paid for these boats. There are certainly so many like that. And she mentions it. And the way she mentions it is often probably the way we would mention it in a conversation with a friend. In Antigua, if you're in Puerto Rico, if you're in Haiti or somewhere else, you're talking about the lingering effects of enslaving people that's like oh i like the way that she mentions it and then she sends you off to find out more (laughs) unfortunately for fans of the brooklyn nets who play in the barclays center (laughs) this is true all right i'm going to try out a theory about this book on you and just tell me what you think it starts out very friendly it makes this turn to hatefulness and then sadness and then nostalgia and then this sort of righteous political sense to it. And then it ends with forgiveness, or it seems to end with forgiveness for me. This is like a loose approximation of the five stages of grief. And it felt to me like her sort of grieving about just everything from the beginning to her life and then trying to get over it and move on with her life or trying to get over it and do something good and do, you know, whatever she wanted to do and be herself. So that's my theory. Please feel free to tear it apart. That's what I felt when I read it. I think she probably would tear it apart in the sense that just overall knowing her work and knowing her a little bit, I think, would resist any kind of linearity to like the process of grief because it continues, right? 
what is most powerful. I think at the end, she's saying too, there's enough responsibility to go around. I think she resists the idea of making angels out of people just because they've suffered. She resists the idea of reduction. So this is like at the end, she says, again, Antigua is a small place, a small island. It is nine miles wide by 12 miles long. It was discovered by Christopher Columbus in 1493. Not too long after it was settled by human rubbish from Europe who enslaved but noble and exalted human beings from Africa. All masters of every stripe are rubbish and all slaves of every stripe are noble and exhausted. There can be no question about this. To satisfy desire for wealth and power, to feel better about their own miserable existence so they could be less lonely and empty a European disease. And then at the end, she says, the people in Antigua now, the people who really think of themselves as Antiguans, and the people who would immediately come to mind when you think about what Antiguans be like, I mean, supposing you were to think about it, are the descendants of those nobles and exhausted people, the slaves. Of course, the whole thing, once you cease to be a master, once you throw off your master's yoke, you are no longer human rubbish, you are just a human being, and all the things that adds up to, so too with the slaves. Once they are no longer slaves, once they are free, they are no longer noble and exhausted, they are just human beings. And in that whole, I feel like that last paragraph encapsulates, like you can end there and then start over. And then there are just human beings, that part of like that nobility, she's questioning it, right? They're just human beings means they had to fight hard to be considered human beings. But then once you're like considered a human being, there's a lot of frailty. There's a lot of baggage. There's a lot that also comes with that. Nobody gets off (laughs) easily on this. I think it ends with still a questioning, with a lot of questioning. What does it mean to be human, especially if you've fought and you're still fighting to be considered human? And then what do you do with that humanity in relation to your other human beings? And then she questions people. She kind of makes fun of them saying the nation. And what does it mean to build a nation, right? With all that history, with all that baggage, with the constant obstacles placed in your path. Wow. Well, this podcast is best when I get taken to school. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to colonize Jamaica Kincaid's work with my shallow (laughs) ideas about grief and you set me straight and I appreciate it. I mean, she might like, I don't know. She would say, okay, okay. And Lucas, you're right. But (laughs) she's not that person. (laughs) I try to like call that forth what I know of her. So this is really just a question for Adwige Danticat and not really about Jamaica Kincaid, but what is the most difficult part for you about writing autobiography? Oh, I guess writing autobiography. (laughs) (laughs) Everything. (laughs) The most difficult part is that vulnerability. And then that discovery of yourself, you know, like in this book, she slips in autobiography. But she also has written pure autobiography, like I mentioned in her book called My Brother. So for me, what's difficult about writing autobiography is to sort of pin at what you consider the truth versus other people's versions of it. When my sense of what autobiography is meets then other people's stories. For example, when I was writing my memoir, it was called Brother, I'm Dying, which echoes Jamaica Kikin's my brother a little bit, I had to really consult with my brothers who were living this experience with me of my father dying and my uncle dying at the same time. 
when I was writing about our childhood, consulting with them, and they remember things very, very differently than I do. And then how do you incorporate that in there? But when you're writing nonfiction in general, I mean, the material already exists. So now how do you tell it without telling everything, choosing what material you tell? It's still storytelling, but I think that personal element of the vulnerability. And now when you're writing personally, it's bigger because it can go like further than the small literary magazines used to go. So you kind of have to be ready for it to travel a little bit further. The idea of like more eyes are on it. You kind of have to build some armor, right? If you're shy or if you're a little bit afraid of public vulnerability. I have two questions for you. One of them is a big one. The other one's a small one. So the first one is, why do you think that the former colonies of the Antilles seem to suffer similar fates after they've liberated or fought their revolutions? Because they've been plundered. (laughs) A lot of their wealth has been extracted from them, things that they could have been benefited from, others have benefited from. Now they have to then suddenly catch up. That's certainly was the case with Haiti. And Haiti was penalized severely by the French, again, with this independence debt, which is thought to possibly be in the billions today, that they had to keep paying, you know, with the threat of war, with the threat of machine guns possibly coming all the time, they had to keep paying that. So they're always playing catch up. Can you tell us about the independence debt a little bit? After the Haitian Revolution, a 12-year battle ended, the French demanded that Haiti pay them for the loss of their plantations and their labor on threat of war. So the Haitian government had to pay this independence debt. And sometimes they had to borrow from the French to pay the French (laughs) at very high interest. So it was just really impossible to build a nation, right? So they weren't able to build institutions. They had to heavily tax coffee and other previous products that they were producing. So at least in the case of Haiti. But if you are from a place where your wealth is plundered and brought elsewhere, and you're still not allowed to determine your own destiny, to control your own resources and use it for your own people, it's very hard to keep up with the rest of the world and the progress that you would like to make for your people. Not to excuse the bad governance of dictators and so forth, but you start with a big sufficient stone on your back. It's like the macroeconomic version of the cycle of poverty. I did not know that the French, after the war was won, said, okay, great, you've won this revolution. You have won the right to buy the land back from us that we stole from you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. At very high interest. (laughs) (laughs) That's so fucked up. Which we will lend you the money to pay us. Oh, man. I can't apologize on behalf of the French because I'm not French, but man, someone who's French should write me a letter and apologize and write a Dweja letter and apologize. You know, in the 90s, there was a campaign by prison I was state of Haiti to try to get the French to repay that debt, which then they estimated at 21 billion. But soon after that, he was overthrown with participation from the French. <laughs> I was going to ask you about political corruption in Haiti, but I don't think we have time because I know I have to let you go. So I'm going to ask you the question that we end every podcast with, which is to recommend two books for our audience to read. 
Well, since we're already with Jamaica Kincaid, I would say to read any Jamaica Kincaid. My first Jamaica Kincaid was Annie John, which is her first book. Or you could read My Brother, which is her memoir, which also is nonfiction. But I would also recommend, since we've talked so much about the Haitian Revolution, there are several books on the Haitian Revolution, but an amazing novel, pre-revolution, that gives you a sense of colonial Haiti by Marie Vieux Chauvet. It's called Dance on the Volcano. Evelyn Touillot, these are fiction books. Evelyn Touillot, who has written a book called The Infamous Rosalie, which gives you a sense of what enslaved people were facing during the colony. And then definitely, if you want to understand the Haitian Revolution, you have to read C.L.R. James, The Black Jacobins. It's, it will tell you everything. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Adwige, for joining us. If you haven't read Adwige's work, you are missing out. It is amazing. I think the intro that I did kind of sums up what the rest of the world thinks of her work. So if you don't know it, you should know it. It's really great. I will put links to some of my favorites in the description of this podcast, Brother, I'm Dying, and some of your other stuff. Edwidge, thank you so much for doing this podcast. Thank you so much for talking to us. And we hope to have you back the next time you have a book out. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. This was amazing. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. My guest next week is Catherine Wolf. She is the author of Beyond, How Humankind Thinks About Heaven. And we'll be talking about Timothy Egan's Pilgrimage to Eternity. Really cool book about a guy who walks from England to Italy in like 2017. Thank you so much for listening. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor. You can reach us at Book Society Pod on Instagram, also BookSocietyPod at gmail.com if you want to send a direct email. Santiago Ramones is the co-producer and also definitely edits the show. He has his own podcast called Bit Depth. It's really good. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, BookSocietyPod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. I would also like to say that I know that you have spoken to Terry Gross. I hope this is the second best interview you've ever done. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my website. Thank you. Thank you.